you're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here with your Murder Mystery World Tour. And we are down to our last week covering Yukido Ayatsuji's The Decagon House Murders, said to be, Herds, yeah. the eighth greatest Honkaku mystery of all time. It's pretty good. By a comprehensive 100 entry list <laughs> that was released in Japan in 2012. Yeah. Now, I'd first of all like to observe that uh, somehow Keigo Higashino's The Devotion of Suspect X fell below mm. um, the how, how murder case. How far the 12th place was it? Or? It, was, it, was, uh, it was 12th place. No, no, no. Honjin murder case was 12th place. That's and right. And Keigo Higashino, I think, was 25th. Oh, really? Done dirty. I Done know. dirty. What That's is so this? sad. I mean, I mean, it must be a palace full of, you know, old school. Mm-hmm club members you know it, from the k university uh, club it, yeah. it's very weird um yeah. i'll link it it's on japanese wikipedia so unless you speak japanese you'll need to get it translated that i found this list uh but mm. it is a bizarre list well, to look uh, down at, at least as far as i'm concerned i mean at the very least it's a good uh list for fodder you know uh-huh. for like if you want to just read through 100 murder mysteries from japan or, or you know from from murder mystery go around the world that's it. Just read that list. Yeah, I, for, it was know? disappointing how few of the Japanese entries in that list had been translated. You know, there were a lot near the top. Yeah, obviously, including the ones that we're speaking mm-hmm. about. But the further you get down the list, yeah. just the sparser and sparser the translations yeah, yeah, get. Yeah. I can imagine. I am glad at least that uh, the Decon House Murders did so well. That's fascinating to me that this is so high. Yeah, uh, up on the list. I I really enjoyed this book mm-hmm. and. I'm. I think that you did too, as I far did. as I can tell. No, I, I enjoyed good, this a good. lot. I. Uh, we before we continue, well, we're talking about the sixth through the eighth days, which is pretty much just yeah. explaining what happened. Yep, just the like, this is who it was mm-hmm. and how it happened and the why. This is which we'll try not to talk about too much. Yeah, this is uh, the, the three chapter <laughs> breakdown scene. And yeah. It was fascinating to me before we get into anything else. If we compare this to the Hunjin murder case, which I just mentioned, which also had a three chapter long breakdown scene, uh-huh. somehow. This manages to keep up its momentum where the Honjin murder case failed. Yeah, I I think personally it's just with the first person perspective, um, following the thoughts of Van Dyne, who who was the killer, of course, uh, and and has having them kind of go through their psychotic interpretation of events and trying to explain through their own ways. Like it's the equivalent of of um finding the the murderer's journal. Or like, this is how I carried everything out. You know, we, we get the obvious setup at the start of the story. There's a message bottle. Oh, uh, clearly, at the end of the story, we're going to read that message bottle and like understand the, the culprit's motive through that message bottle. Not what happens. But it does play into the final scene as we've had the, the psychopath explain to us the mystery. And then a character who is neither of the detectives in this story, uh, Shimada, says, I think I think I might have a theory, Morisu. Do you want to have a chat about that? He says, you know what? Kid, give that guy that message bottle. He'll yeah. he'll understand. Is, oh. I think the particular thing that sold that scene to me is that he says no to Shimada, walks away, then sees the yes. message bottle, this like omen of fate, yeah. and tells the kid who just happens to be yeah. playing near it to give it to them yeah. to Shimada. It's, it's like perfect. The, it's the, poetic. Yeah, the delivery of that just completely implausible action of the message bottle appearing there is yeah. incredible. And the thing that it leaves open ended is maybe Shimada found it and put it there. Yeah, quite possibly. And that open-endedness just creates this beautiful atmosphere to a scene that is so simple. I mean, f- for me, that scene is what cemented this novel in my mind as like, this is a brilliant novel. Yeah. I love the way this story ends because we don't end with 
with a culprit being convicted or justice being done, it's just we we have the promise yeah. of that occurring. We have the promise of the future, which is brilliant. There are other aspects of this novel that are that are also subversive in really interesting ways, like the island. You know, mm-hmm. it's a pretty rote murder mystery trope to have the island with the mansion. Uh, but of course, in this in this story, the mansion's already been burned down. Yeah. You know? Um, and normally in these stories, the whole point of the island is so that it's a closed circle murder mystery. Um, I think the other thing that was really great about that too, is that the first scene we get with the club as they approach the island is them discussing the rules of the chalet snowstorm murder mystery trip, which is what the, it's the closed circle, but there's also a snowstorm. So nobody could have left. So we immediately point out there is no snowstorm. Mm -hmm. Thus the novel tells you outright Someone can and probably will leave the island. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's why a twist as ridiculous as, <laughs> you know, Morisu being Van Dyne it's lands brilliant. so well because you read the first page and you go, oh, of course. Of course it is. <laughs> yeah. And and even beyond, even beyond that, the fact, and this is something that I kind of toyed with in my mind as we were discussing these, we have two uh, detectives. We have one on the island in the form of Ellery and one off the island in, in Conan, and yet neither of them solve anything. They both fail miserably yeah. and and cause tragedy to occur. And I kind of love that. <laughs> like yeah. it's it's really brilliant because it plays on the, I guess, Van Dynian fittingly concept of the game being a battle between the detective and the culprit. Mm -hmm. And in this case, the culprit just has such an upper hand that the detectives are both helping the culprit the entire time along until it's more than too late to work around it. And in that case, Shimada Kiyoshi, the clear insert character for Soji Shimada here, it effectively serves as the reader in this story. Mm-hmm. He is your perspective where he figures out what's going on once he's gotten to the end of the story, but yeah. there's nothing really that he can do about it. You know, the book cuts off before we actually get any consequences. And that's the same way mm-hmm. that an actual murder mystery story will end. There's that saying that, uh, you know, maybe somebody who knows murder mysteries could commit the perfect crime. And obviously <laughs> that's not the case. Because in nine out of ten murder mysteries, the, the crime gets solved. So yes. it's not a good basis to, to like form a, a murder mystery off of. Um, but that's kind of, we kind of explore that area uh, through this novel. We see a situation where a character who is, uh, you know, generally familiar with, with murder mysteries is able to use not a series of tricks and tropes, but one very simple proof, I guess, in the yeah. form of an alibi. Like an alibi is the most basic part of any murder mystery, um, especially ones involved time or locked rooms. Like did this person have the opportune moment, the opportunity to commit the murder? Yeah. And so if Van Dyne can convince multiple people that he was never even on the island, then he satisfied that most basic principle of alibi. I don't know. I just kind of love this book, I guess. I love the way that it plays with your expectations and, and subverts so many of its own tropes while also playing so many like horror tropes in particular. Yeah. Uh, so straight. And I think the way that uh, Yukito Ayatsuji actually blends some of the principles of of Eastern ghost mysteries yes. uh, into the story and into the outcome uh, is really well done. Because obviously one of the kind of principles of, of Eastern ghost stories is that you trigger those ghost stories by doing something seemingly innocuous. Yeah. You you trespass onto the sacred ground, you pick up the, the Ouija board, you play the 
the videotape or whatever, you know. And, and then that's, all of a sudden, Robin Williams is asking you what it. year it is. That's exactly it. Um, and in this story, you could you could use either uh, the death of Chiori, which we'll talk more about in part three, uh, or just the vacationing on an island that's probably haunted. Yeah. Uh, you could use either of those or both of those as the innocuous trespass. And fittingly, it ends in tragedy. It ends with the culprit getting everything that they that they want by the end. It ends with the the ghosts of the past um, in Van Dyne uh, completely victorious. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that. <laughs> Again. <laughs> the, the other thing I like about the way that it delivers that uh, kind of ghost story uh, is, is also you've referenced, obviously, a bit of game design. And we've been speaking a bit sure. of that as we've been writing our story this mm-hmm, year. Mm-hmm. And I think the fun thing about this is the idea that Van Dyne's plan didn't survive contact with the enemy, which is a very common thing you have to consider in game design. Mm -hmm. And what that essentially means is that you do get those innocuous actions turning into something tragic through the nature of just cause and effect of people subverting Van Dyne's expectations in the same way that Yukido Ayatsuji subverts our expectations. In in the story, um, I mean, Agatha was supposed to have died on the third day, Mm -hmm. for example. The the poison lipstick was a a time bomb, um, as you might say, and Van Dyne had planned for the murders to occur much more rapidly when they did. Um, And I think that's, that's pretty interesting because he obviously didn't, from the beginning have a very kind of clean idea of how he was going to get through it. But yeah, he, he's always trying to adapt and, and overcome the situation, biding his time like the venomous snake that he is. Yeah. Anyhow, you're listening to Death of the Reader. We are discussing Yukido Ayatsuji's The Decagon House Murders, the last three days of that story. We'll be back with more of that in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here. We've spoken before on the show about how formative short stories are to many authors we love, giving them the room to test their ideas and writing chops before putting it up against the 300-page monster. Think of Raymond Chandler's No Crime in the Mountains, which we covered on our first year of the show that ended up being rolled into The Lady of the Lake. Now, we may not be a noir show, but noir is an inescapable twin to the mystery fiction we love, and as such, I'm thrilled to be joined by David Arrowsmith, a prolific creative director and producer over in the UK, as well as author of Nevada Noir, a trilogy of short stories set in the Silver State that call back to the many great authors that inspired it. David, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Great to be here. So I was really interested in how Nevada Noir takes the tried and true birth, life, death structure that you'll often find in character studies and flips it on its head, going through the last moments of an old man's life, the new beginning of a young couple, and then the birth of a child. What compelled you to flip the narrative on its head when tying these three short stories together? Um, That's a very astute observation um, and a very good question. And I think it must have just come about through all the influences that I've had both in in, in reading and in watching um, in literature and in film. Um, I, you know, it started as a, as a single story. That's the first story. And it took a bit of time to add the other layers. Um, and they just kind of came organically. And I think I just got really lucky that it became a structure that um, became bigger than, than the sum of its parts, really. Yeah. So I'm not sure I can claim a moment of uh, <laughs> g- genius, really, there. I think it's just having that drip, drip, drip effect of the writers and the films I love, the genre and the wider genre, you know, is quite dark. I wanted to give it some hope somewhere. Um, and so I think that's where it, it, this sort of journey from death through life to birth sort of made sense to me. It starts as the, the darkness, 
but the progression to light and is the progression to to new hope and new beginnings and a new opportunity. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because I mean, as you say, then noir kind of naturally leads to the more grim parts of life. So starting there and taking it somewhere else to kind of resolve the story, because, you know, when you have a short story like this, you don't have as much room to uh, resolve stories in the same way that you would do in a larger novel. So having that more hopeful ending is like a very clever trick, I think. Thank you. <laughs> um, one of the other th- things that comes to mind out of writing a small story is that you can really get the chances as a writer to test out the micro elements of writing that can sometimes get left out to dry in those longer stories. So why did you choose to start self-publishing with a short story collection and not keep them tucked away until the first multi-hundred pager found its way uh, onto, onto paper? I think that's probably one of my main human frailties is uh, impatience. Um, funnily enough, for people who know me, I'm a very, very patient person. I'm very British in that sense, in, in, in some ways. Um, but with this, um, I had I had written something, uh, the sort of the longest, most involved bit of writing I'd, I'd done, really. I'd always written down scraps and, and bits and pieces and ideas, but I'd never really fleshed them out and written a story through word by word. And when I'd done it, I just, I thought it might be quite good, but I wasn't really sure. And and I, and I rediscovered a love for writing. And I remembered that this is what I'd wanted to do all my life, actually. Uh, I think I, I needed some feedback. I needed some positive reinforcement. So I, I wanted feedback and, and, and I wanted feedback beyond just my kind of friends and family. So I thought I'd take the plunge. And so I, I decided to self-publish because I just wanted to get it into the hands of, of some random people and see if any, of, if any of them thought, oh, I'd like to hear more from this person. So that's what I did. And the, the response has been really great. And as a result, although I'm busy with my day job and I'm, I'm a father of a toddler, you know, I, I am doing my best to commit significant time to writing much longer works that I'm hoping will, will come out in the not too distant future and, and be the kind of starting point for a, a proper career as, as a published author. Yeah, I guess uh, I guess working in some live television, you'd be very used to the trial by fire of putting something you've poured your heart and soul into in front of an audience and just having to take the brunt of it no matter what comes. That's literally what my day job is day in, day out, is devising ideas for documentary programs, um, pitching them, you know, discussing them with colleagues, um, pitching them to, to broadcasters in the UK and the US around the world, um, and then being told being told most of the time that they're rubbish. You know, that's <laughs> that's just the, the, the cross you bear. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm very used to pouring my heart into something and then having someone tell me that it doesn't work for this reason or they don't like it for that reason. What I think you learn from that is that you have to take the positives where you can and you have to be brave. Now, another example I wanted to bring to mind is we've been looking in this episode of the show today is on Yukido Ayatsuji's The Decagon House Murders, which I thought was a fun comparison to Nevada Noir since Ayatsuji has two parallel plots revolving the same crimes, each of which has seemingly no way to influence uh, the other narrative going on. Did the different stories in Nevada Noir always have the same core connection or was that a decision that came later down the line? They, they sort of sprung from each other organically, but over a period of time. So, so I wrote the first story as a standalone story. It kind of came to me in, in a dream um, about a year after visiting Nevada. Um, and, I, and I woke up with this image of this man in the shack and the storm breaking over the landscape. And, and I just started writing it down in, on my phone, in the shower and on my way to work. I'm and well I, familiar I, I, with that notebook. We all have one, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, this, yeah. This was this was riskily on my iPhone in the shower, so it was a little bit a little bit dangerous. Um, just about waterproof enough. And then I 
about a month after that, I came up with the idea of of then following that journey on with the discovery of of the briefcase, as it were. And and then the third one, likewise, came, came after I'd written or at least plotted out the second one. And I just kind of challenged myself to find a way that would bring a couple of those threads together, but but leave that sort of open-ended, hopeful ending. So does this mean you are confessing to being what the uh, the writing community calls a pantser, David? Uh, uh, to some extent, definitely on this one, uh, it was pretty pan- It was pretty pantsy. Yeah, it was pretty pantsy. I think the thing that's most interesting to me about that is that, to my mind, television is one of the few creative mediums where pantsing is just unacceptable because of how much planning goes into it and it's so interesting to me that for someone who's been working in that industry for so long you took such a different approach on uh, getting to write these three stories i think that that is true although um in drama that is definitely true which is obviously closer yeah. to fiction of the written kind but what i do a lot of is documentary and sometimes that is very pantsing i guess yeah because you wouldn't know what footage you're going to get no you just let the cameras roll you set up a situation you let the cameras roll and you see what the characters do and that's kind of what I did. The other thing I wanted to touch on is that you have been so competitive at promoting this collection online, responding to innumerable threads, reaching out to us here on the show, putting the book up for free for limited periods of time. How engaged do you think a writer needs to be when releasing a book, especially when it's self-published and largely online? I I mean, it's incredibly difficult and I have to admit, I, I, I knew nothing about this when I did it. I should have done lots more homework. I should have really prepared myself. I should have built... You know, built my online platform, got, you know, got advanced copies out, you know, all the things that you're supposed to do, I didn't do because I kept this idea to myself. And then I thought, I want to get some feedback. So I just kind of put it online and then realized I hadn't told my family. I hadn't told my friends. No one knew about it. There was no launch. I hadn't built my platform. So I've done that. I've been kind of running to catch up. Um, And so it's a bit easier to find, you know, two minutes on your phone to, send a tweet or you know re- respond to a thread or or, or, or find someone to, to reach out to so I think it's really important I think I've done it very badly <laughs> I've, I've, I've tried but there's not been enough strategy so I'm working on that if it had been my my masterpiece novel you know I think I would have been foolish to self-publish immediately online without going through querying and all of that process without having significant advanced you know kind of beta readers and all that kind of stuff i think now i've had enough positive response that i'll take it really seriously and um and the next wave i think will be really exciting yeah and i suppose um both my congratulations to you because i think not many people are kind of brave enough to make as many mistakes as you did and you know mistakes can still pay off in creative industries that's one really scary thing and why also to you listening if you're an independent author maybe self-publishing feel free to reach out to the show our social media inboxes are open at flex and herds and uh, as well as covering the latest bestsellers we do love to feature people like yourself david who self-published do this kind of really scary stuff as a creative individual um and why i super appreciate you getting in touch with us on the show yeah it's it's an amazing adventure to be honest but there's so much to learn i think and yeah my advice to anyone re- uh, listening sorry um who who's thinking about doing it or about to do it would be maybe just do a bit of research, just hit pause for a second (laughs) um, and just make sure you've got everything lined up. But yeah, I would say do it. It's amazing. It's an amazing experience, but there's a lot to learn. So just be prepared for that. Alrighty. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us here on Death of the Reader. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. And we will, of course, have links up on the podcast to Nevada Noir if people are curious to check it out. Thanks very much, guys. Pleasure to talk to you. 
You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are discussing Yukido Ayatsuji's The Decagon House Murders, and we'll be back with more of that in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here with our final bit of discussion on Yukido Ayatsuji's The Decagon House Murders, a revolutionary Japanese murder mystery. We are discussing the last three days and three chapters of this story. And uh, Herds. Yeah, Flex, what's up? We uh, we did pretty all right with this mystery. And by we, I mean I. <laughs> I was going to say, I want to say out the gate uh, before we get too deep in the discussion, I think you've earned two points. I think that's where you're sitting at right Thank now. Thank you. Thank there, you. There were some stumbles with the Blue Mansion murder mystery. Definitely. And and shockingly, you had nothing to say about the motive. <laughs> A whole one of the the three things that oh, you're supposed to say. No. Yeah. We- <laughs> Well, let's let's get. Do you want to get into it? Are you ready? Before we get into this, <laughs> I do want to compliment the delivery yeah. of the culprit reveal. Yeah, truly is a phenomenal moment. And I mean, it happened more or less exactly as I predicted. It. I, I am Van Dyne. It's for, for which I would like to play a short clip that we recorded just after finishing last uh, last episode. Hello, Minami. Did you also have a strange name like that when you were in the club? Uh, well, yes. What was your nickname? Uh, it's a bit embarrassing. I was Doyle, Cronin Doyle. The inspector laughed. <laughs> One of the masters. Then I guess that Morisu here is Maurice LeBlanc. Let's go, boys. Don't read The forward. inspector asked, amused. Morisu frowned slightly and muttered, no. A self-deprecating smile appeared on his lips for a brief moment. Then with downcast eyes and a low voice, he answered, end of page. <laughs> I'm Van Dyne. <laughs> yes! <laughs> so, Herds, you, I, I, was, I was a little chuffed. I was a little it's chuffed. Pretty, it's yeah. a great moment, right? Yeah. Like, it's a very dramatic, tropey moment, and it plays so perfectly right at the end of the chapter, just as you turn the page mm-hmm. in the edition that, that Flex and I were, yeah. were reading with, which is, like, it's phenomenal. The other thing is, you know, we've discussed the Blue Mansion murders and how they're intentionally impossible to solve with the uh-huh. information you're given. Sure. You just have to guess which trope Ayatsuji is subverting. Uh-huh. And sure. that, that's fine. I'm not going to argue that, but it's the kind of thing mm. that you want to be aware of. Uh-huh. Uh, if, you, if you've gotten to the end and you're checking your notes and you're like, but but I got it right. It's like, yeah, that's that's fine. You, you should be proud of yourself because you were on the wavelength of Ayatsuji. I was True. not on Ayatsuji's wavelength okay. with this story. I, I, I made so many goofy errors. <laughs> That's okay. That's how it be. Look, now you're down on my level. You know how know. it feels for us peasants. I uh, know. <laughs> it, was, it was so humiliating when I reread the prologue for last week's episode. I just, I put the book down or put my phone down on the table and had to walk around for a second. I was like, how did I, how did I interpret it this way? That's okay. Look, this is all part of the fun. Uh, but as we as we say, y- you may be asking, but Herds, you didn't quiz flex at all on the motive, which is, you know, there's the who, the how, and the why. That's right. It's almost like we forgot to talk about it. We did not forget. We did not uh, forget. The problem is that this novel doesn't really explain its why in any meaningful way. Like, it's obvious as there's letters being handed out to all the all the club members who aren't on the island saying, you mm. killed Shiori. Like, obviously, yeah. this is being done because they killed Shiori. But there are so many elements of uh, what, in I think in Ayosuji's mm. mind are foreshadowing, like the cutting off of the left hand, um, that is actually done because Orxy has a little ring on her finger, which is like from Shiori. And it's both evidence to, as to the motive of the crime, because sure, 
Uh, and also a little memento that Van Dyne wants to like take for himself, and that's why he cuts off her that's left right. hand. And it's also not mentioned once in the story no. until she, the conclusion. The, the ring itself is never mentioned. Orsi doesn't go, "Ooh, I have this nice new ring on my yeah. finger." Nothing. I, the the scene I imagined it would have been in is the one where she's reminiscing on her yeah. friendship, and, and she if fiddles he, with the, yeah, the just, ring exactly. Like, it would have been it, so easy. You, you didn't even have to say the word ring. You just say, "I I like." fiddle with it in my hand but it was like stuck on my finger or something i think the most disappointing thing about it on on this note is that the story is so committed to the idea that van dyne and shiori's relationship was a secret Mm -hmm. like entirely a secret that it never does anything with the premise aside from shiori was the motive yeah it's too well kept i think this particular mystery yeah except for the blatant letters which are more of an invitation to solve the why than they are an explanation. Totally. That makes sense. And I think the the incredibly annoying thing about this, as I mentioned at the end of the first part of the show today, is that this is one of the things wherein the story points out its own flaws. And there's so many of these little details through this final breakdown scene pointing out, uh, you know, oh, well, he had a boat that was, because his uncle had a boat. <laughs> yeah, and he had uh. a wetsuit. He had a wetsuit. And he he slept in the room that had a hole in the floor, which is such an insane, unnecessary yeah. detail. Uh, and none of that, none of that is foreshadowed no. in any which no. way. There's not even, and this is again something that could be very easily hinted at if somebody went, "Hey Van Dyne, can we like look in your room?" And he's like, "No." Like even even if they just had one sentence where someone walked past Van Dyne's room during the day and noticed he always had his curtains closed, yeah, it would have it would have done it. It would have yeah. solved the problem. Yeah. And Just something a bit more direct than yeah. what's in the novel currently. And I think that, as I said, this is incredibly frustrating because it's so obvious what the flaws are, but it is also so admirable because the book is so good even when the flaws are being hurled at your face. I, I do want to say, actually, the names, I think that might be the best because that's why the Iron Van Diamond works so well is because when the police are talking about, because the police show up, they're like, we're going to identify the corpses. And they don't call them, you know, Ellery and Oxy. They call them by their Japanese names. Yeah. Like their their actual birth names. And so when uh, you, you realize, oh, wait, but there's only six. But which one's the seventh? Mm-hmm. Because we don't know them by these names. Exactly. So we figure out who Ellery is. I love that the trick of this novel, uh, as you were saying, the satisfaction of figuring out the trick that it is a name game. I love that this is a story where the trick is implicitly tied with the medium that it's a part of. I was um, actually, I was hashing this out with uh, with Andrew Povel from Final Draft during oh, yeah. the week. And we came up with the idea that you could f- you could do this story in a visual medium, provided yeah. that you get ca- actors to play the people who looked like the the authors whose names they were referencing. <laughs> yeah. So sure. Agatha Christie is just played by an actress who's meant to look like Agatha Christie until we get back to the mainland. Yeah, I mean, this is the right. In order to make this trick work in a, in a visual adaptation, you had to get very silly with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Could you imagine? He says, "I'm Van Dyne," and Scooby Doo esque pulls off his face. <laughs> it's Van Dyne's face. Van Dyne, yes, Turville Van Dyne's face, of course. <laughs> all, all coked up and ready to, you know, write more mysteries. <laughs> he like, wipes his nose. Anyway, uh, so bad. <laughs> you know, as we said, it's so impressive that this story manages to do what it does by taking advantage of its medium, yep. by uh, capitalizing on its knowledge of the archetypes of the, the genre. Yep, absolutely. And this is so fair play, it blows my mind. <laughs> yeah. For a trick this ridiculous that 
almost requires knowledge of the fact that SS Van Dyne was a persona of someone who didn't want to be known as SS Van Dyne. Like, it, it's it's so brilliant about yeah. using the tools to make you get to the end and be ready for what they're about to reveal to you in that scene where Van Dyne unmasks himself. And it is a great mystery novel and definitely a hot contender for review season oh. at the end of the year. But Herds, it's tough. It's tough. What it's is time oh, it's to time move flex. on. We've already announced this book. If you've been paying attention, mm. we are going to next week be covering the incredible <gasps> Agatha Christie's <gasps> And Then There Were None. The Unpossible. Mm-hmm. And then there were none. But of course, Herds, you and I both know the answer. Yeah, well, this is this is the fun thing. Uh, I I actually haven't read it all the way through, but I am very familiar with the answer, with the twists. I can't read through and in good faith solve this thing. And Flex can't, He's yeah, he already solved it once before, as far as we know. I've already read it so, twice this week. Well, there you go. And so now we're going to have to bring in some, uh, not necessarily fresh meat, but someone who, who may be illegible to combat us in the arena of points on this show. I really like how you blurred the line between eligible and illegible <laughs> in your you. pronunciation there. That was quite exquisite. Thank Sean you. Britton will be joining hey! us, our arch nemesis, back yes. again. In the ring. And we are we are hoping that we can best him with this classic murder mystery tale. I, my, hopes, my hopes are not high. We're going to lose points <laughs> to this comfortably. He is he is incredibly strong contender. But yeah, he'll be reading, uh, Sean will be reading chapters one to six, and we're going to see if he can figure out who is the killer on this island full of questionable characters. As always, if you want to get in touch, tell us your theories as you read through the book. Be sure to drop us a line at Flex and Herds, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You're listening to Death of the Reader. This is 2SER 107.3, and we'll see you alongside Agatha Christie and Sean Britton next Next week. Next week. That's all right. I'm going to leave that in. Okay, good. (laughs)